I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is pediatrician and author Angela Matke, MD, author of Mayo Clinic Guide to Raising a Healthy Child. Raising a child in the 21st century is a life-changing adventure with many unknowns, but also plenty of rewards. Addressing parents' key questions and concerns, Dr. Angela Matke helps parents navigate many of the twists and turns of parenting by offering a trusted guide to raising children during the preschool and elementary school years. Dr. Matke, a pediatrician in the Division of Community Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine at Mayo Clinic Children's Center, has a special interest in using social media to connect with patients and families. She hosts a Facebook live show with Mayo Clinic called Hashtag Ask the Mayo Mom. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Matt Key. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So raising healthy children. Everybody wants to raise healthy children. I guess maybe it's not so easy to do in the context of all that's happening in our society with families, uh, with schools, politics, all of that. But one of the things I think that you focus on in your book, how to keep your child safe and happy and healthy in the 21st century with all of these outside influences and plethora of information. So maybe we should start with that. How do you do that? Because this is kind of the overall context for the book, for the guide. Right, right. You know, there's there's no magic bolt to parenting, right? But what we're trying to do is we've created a book for anyone out there who wants to be a good parent and who wants to, you know, provide the advantages that a stable, loving adult can provide. So we've created this book that brings together the latest evidence-based research about how to keep your child healthy, safe, and then raise them to be resilient in this 21st century. But we've tried to present this in a manner that is practical and useful and pragmatic for families. So when you talk about practical and useful, because I think that's key, uh, what are we talking about, practical and useful for families? Because it's true, you read a lot of these guides. I have three grown kids, three grandchildren, uh, so I'm sort of back in the throes of it with my son and my daughter-in-law and, you know, raising three little boys, a set of twins. Yeah. Um, and there are differences in terms of how I see parenting and how they see parenting, which sort of brings up maybe some of the generational differences you could, you could address. But, um, yeah. so, but, yeah. So when, you know, guess, absolutely, every generation has you know faced different challenges and different approaches somewhat to parenting, um, and I'm and I'm sure it's it's different um, for especially grandparents to sit back and see their kids maybe raising uh, their grandchildren in a different kind of uh, maybe approach to what they they did, but there's certainly different challenges that parents are now facing. You know, we're we're in a a time where our kids are being raised in a digital environment and screens um, and other social influences are much more a part of the conversation than they have been in the past. So what's the effect on that? Because you're right. I mean, with the advent of the Internet, everything changed. Information Mm -hmm. for the kids, but also information for the parents, this overabundance, as you say, as I guess I preface my question with a plethora of information. So how do you... Yeah, take a practical approach to parenting, given all this information. Right. You know, there's um, there's so much information out there, and there's a lot of noise sometimes on the Internet, and it's hard to know which information is tr- can, you can trust and which information is accurate. And so this book tries to, you know, I have different chapters and different parts that really address the common things that I'm hearing from patients and families in the office and the things that I face, too, as a parent. And everyone that was involved with this book, you know, their parents, too, and we're kind of walking through this this together. 
Um, but, you know, with the screens and the technology, you know, just offering a couple tips from that perspective is young children, especially children less than age two, they really don't need screen time. Um, children in this age really should be focused instead on unstructured free play. Um, and this means, you know, when they're, you know, they're going around, they're playing, and they're exploring because there's so much of their development that is learned through the play process, and you don't even realize how much is going on. And that's a large focus of the preschool curriculum as well and should be going forward. Um, as you get into, you know, older age, the, the preschool age to the early school age, uh, screens, you know, start to become a much more prevalent part of their life. Um, but we still encourage that you're, you know, especially in the two to five year age group, that you're really trying to limit it instead, still focusing on that play and all the areas of development that we want them to be working on. Um, and then when you get into the school age, right, our kids are, like I mentioned earlier, are growing up in this digital world. And it's going to be a part of their lives. And there's, there's really no change in that, no, no matter how much we wish it were not that case sometimes. But as families, I recommend that you be proactive at looking at how media um, is affecting your life and the life of your child and figuring out how you're going to approach that, okay? There's no one-size-fits-all model. Every family is going to have to figure out how it fits into their life. But a couple of things I'd recommend is figuring out what type of media they can use, how much, and when the media is allowed. Um, and there's, you know, many other things that I can go through if you're interested in that as well. Yeah, I'm interested in like, because very often parents and, and uh, on a lot of the shows that I do also, we talk, get into like the negative effects of screen time. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the positive effects. And as you say, every family is right. different. They have a different uh, schedules. They have, a, you know, maybe they only have one kid. Maybe they have five kids. That makes a difference. Those are a lot of different, com- you know, right. combinations, right? So let's talk about the positives, right. the real positive stuff. Yeah. For, for screen time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, there, um, especially in the preschool age, there is some media that is evidence-based to be helpful at encouraging development. But it's really recommended during this, this time that you're co-viewing and helping really interpret to the kids and translate the information that they're learning from that digital environment into their three-dimensional world. And so the things that I'd recommend that families use that can be a positive for them is things from like the PBS workshop um, and um, things from a PBS, have actually been studied and evidence-based. Uh, if anyone has ever heard of the show, you know, Daniel Tiger, they've looked at using that to help teach social-emotional development in children. Um, when you get into the school age, um, and especially the teen years, media can really, you know, be helpful. Their world and the way that they communicate with others is incorporated into their, their digital and their social media environments, and those actually can be very supportive relationships. Um, especially in teens, we see that there's kind of this U-shaped curve as it relates to depression um, in the amount of media and social media that children or that teens view. And so not viewing any or being part of any type of online or social media community can actually be isolating for teens. Um, So if you think about many other teens are involved with that, and there can be support and support networks that are a part of it. But um, as you start to see a lot more um, media, social media use and viewing and engagement, we start to see um, isolation that can develop. So there's some type of happy medium in there that can be supportive to the children, especially children with, you know, complex medical needs, um, isolating social situations. They can really find supportive networks um, through the use of social media. We can also use social media to encourage and change and influence behaviors of teens. Like you mentioned, there can be negative influencers, but there also can be positive influence as well. 
One of the things that I've done with, and this is a three-year-old grandson, I've used it, and I think you you sort of touched that touched on that at the beginning of answering this question is, you know, you use it together with the child, like we went to see something, it was a music event, and then came back, mm-hmm. and I went through different musical instruments with him when we had a chance to discuss it, you know, to discuss them, but he had sort of a background for it, so he had been listening to this concert, and using it in that way, I thought was great, I mean, and it was really very right. effective, yeah, that, and I think that's part of what you're talking about, at least with the younger right, yeah. kids, yeah. Use it as a tool, you know, not as, as a babysitter, and so especially, you know, the co viewing, you can really, you know, um, add on to the experiences that they may be having with their media and, and make it more applicable to what they're doing in their environment. So, okay, that's social media. And you, uh, let, let's go on to, let's take another topic that, that you cover in the book. Um, oh, and one of the things okay. you talk about, how, how to have smart discussions with your child. What does that mean? Because I know that's one of the things right. that, that you do cover. What, yeah. is a smart, what is a smart discussion? Sure. I think smart, you know, smart discussions are creating kind of an open dialogue with your child, starting at an early age. You know, young children have questions and concerns, and they're very inquisitive. And so being open and creating a dialogue early in life, and you can use that same pattern of communication as they go into their middle school years and even their teen years when they're starting to face more significant challenges, especially the things you really want to be there to support them about and know that's going on. If you've created that open dialogue early, they're going to be more likely to have that, that questions and communications with you then. Yeah, and I think the open dialogue often happens, and I think parents, particularly of teenagers, know this, or middle school kids, like when you're driving them to soccer practice or swim practice, all of a sudden they'll ask you about, you know, is the, you know, where do babies come from or how do you, you know, what's the contraceptive, all those questions, and it's sort of out of the blue while you're, you know, uh, but you have to be prepared to answer them when they're ready, and sometimes, you know, yeah. it's not when you're sitting in there, you know, in a quiet space right. in your house, yeah. So, right. uh, yeah. Of, those are some of the most organic conversations you can have is when they're bringing up their concerns to you when they have them, and rather than your own agenda about how you want to approach them. So asking them what they want to know and then meeting them with appropriate responses that are developmentally where they're at is really important. All right. Another area, divorce, and unfortunately, or is you know what I guess the statistics are. I guess they're going down, but still, fifty percent of marriages wind up in divorce, or at least forty-five percent of them. So, how does divorce, or how can it affect a young child's physical and and mental development? And how can you mitigate some of the you know the the stress or the um, of a divorce? Right. Um, you know, divorce, like any other difficult circumstances that a child. Um, will go through has the opportunity to really create some excellent resilience for them. So resilience is when children learn to kind of work through struggles and bounce back and persevere and adapt in the face of those challenges. And divorce is, you know, a great example um, that that can be handled in a really positive manner for kids. One way that we, we recommend is that you, you break the news together with your partner um, and you show that you're a united front and that you're still going to be there co-parenting together going forward and trying to be on the same page. That's a really important thing for families to try and work through and really, really difficult as, the, as they're going through um, dissolving their partnership. Um, but trying to have the same routines and consistency is, is very important. Kids need routines and consistency, and if you can kind of work on trying to make it at least similar, it, they're going to do a lot better in those situations. 
There's two things. Doctor, you know, you talk about resiliency. I just want to step back a little Mm -hmm. because that's, you know, that's a word that you now hear, not just with children, but with adults. We need to be resilient and resilient and that makes us healthy because we're all going to suffer from stress. But at the same time, which seems to be the opposite, I see parents who are so, now I guess they call them snowplow parents. It used to be helicopter parents, but they're so over-involved with their children trying to fix everything, which is kind of the opposite of helping them, their kids to become resilient. So do you see that in your practice? Yeah, you know, absolutely I see that. Um, There's lots of different parenting styles. Um, but this is one, one thing that I think is a challenge for parents, right? You want your child to have, you know, a, a great life and you don't want to see them struggling, but it's actually a really important thing to hold back and not try and smooth and pave the way for them when they're fighting with their friends or when they're not doing well in school or they get in trouble with something. It's okay to let them have to face the consequences. And I think building resiliency in, involves teaching your child that decisions have consequences and whenever appropriate, allow those your child to make the decisions and let those consequences and those decisions play out. It's very hard. It's very challenging. As a parent, I, I can speak to it myself, but this is how kids learn, right? Um, and they have to experience adversity. And you can start with small things. I mean, even as young as, you know, sleep training and in infancy is building resiliency up with your child, right? You're teaching them it's okay to be uncomfortable at times and teaching them, to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable um, and that in tolerating those emotions are really important skills for your child to develop. It doesn't happen in one day, right? It's a constant lifetime evolution of, of us learning to, you know, roll with the punches and bounce back um, through failures in life. What happens when the couple or the partners have very different outlooks on uh, raising children? Because, you know, their role models typically are, also, you know, their own parents or their own parenting. Mm-hmm. And if there are, and I guess I'm asking you in the context maybe of your practice, like, how do you resolve those things? Right. You know, everyone brings their own life experiences into it and what they experienced and how their parents parented me are certainly going to influence what they bring to the table and the partnership of raising their kids. Um, what I try to focus on is the most important thing is their child. And they all want the best for their child. And the best thing usually involves them being on the same page. And sometimes that involves negotiation between the two parents when their child's not around and figuring out how are we going to handle these situations. Um, And if they don't know how to handle them in the moment and they're not sure if their partner would agree, it's okay to take a step back and say, well, address this when, you know, your mother or your father or my partner gets home and we'll figure out what the best approach is. Um, But the most important thing is trying to work through these challenges as parents and figuring out how to be proactive and be consistent. Okay, proactive and consistent. And I guess that brings me to my next question. Uh, today, um, grandparents, baby boomer grandparents, which, of which I yeah. am, are very <laughs> involved with their grandchildren and very active yeah. and very sure about what, you know, they're, they have very definite views on raising kids. Um, how do the grandparents fit into the picture? And some grandparents actually take care of the kids all day long. Why parents, both parents work, for instance, and are, you know, with them most of the time. Um, but so how do you, how does that fit into this, uh, raising a healthy child? Mm, Absolutely. So it's, I think it's such a blessing for families to be able to have a grandparent involved, right? They have so many life experiences that they can share. And I think parents need to be okay with asking for help too from grandparents. 
Um, but sometimes that can bring in some challenges. Like you mentioned, they, you know, there's different approaches to parenting. Um, and I think the first step the parents should do is really try to acknowledge the grandparents' feelings and where they're coming from um, and making sure that, you know, their, their importance is also being acknowledged in this situation. Um, and then also making sure that um, they're, they're involved with making sure the routines and consistency are going forward with their, their grandchild. You know, some grandparents are raising um, their second, uh, you know, their grandchildren, um, and they're being the primary custodian for them. And that's in, in a blessing and a whole different life experience with other challenges. One of the things that I've told, this is just a personal experience that I've said to my kids, is when I'm taking care of, let's say, my grandson, who, and I mentioned him as three years old, just remember, I'm not the babysitter, I'm the grandmother. So I'm not going to do, you know, you can't tell me to do the same kinds of things necessarily, not that they balk at this, uh, that the babysitter does. You know, I'm going to do it my way, which is going to be different than your way for the for the day or the evening that he stays overnight and we have a good time and I'm probably not going to be taking him to the library so that he can learn how to read because I've done that, been there. I don't want to do that. I want to do the fun stuff and I'll go to the concerts. Yeah. And there is a difference that, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a difference, but there's, you know, that's also a, a really cool opportunity for that, your grandson to be able to experience other things. Um, and I think it's hard sometimes for parents to not have control over every aspect of their child's life, but that's okay too, because there's, there's definite advantages to those situations. Control. You bring up the word control. And I see this, and especially I think perhaps maybe, and, and you can correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, but I think because a lot of, uh, parents, partners don't have children until they're say 35, that, you know, window of 35 to 40, people who have, are, professionals or in business have had a control over their lives kind of maybe want to put have that same feel that they would like to have the same control over the kids and it just are over their children and get frustrated if it doesn't happen maybe less so than the generation before uh, maybe you can comment on that I, I i see i see that as a social worker too um mm-hmm. that there's this yeah and that it, it, it sometimes it's frustrating for the parents because yeah they, yeah Absolutely. You know, I, 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 when any time that your expectations or how you think sh- things should go aren't met, people are going to be, you know, dissatisfied or upset um, and feeling, you know, frustrated in those situations. Um, but I think and, and this is an opportunity for parents to kind of role model that resiliency and learning how to adapt um, and move forward um, and realize that, you know, different experiences and it maybe didn't go the way you expected, but there were still definite positives that came out of this. And you could roll that for your role model for that for your child. And really trying to stay in control of your emotions in front of your child when things don't go as you expect is, is, is great. I mean, it's, it's an opportunity right there to show them, look, things didn't go like mom or dad wanted them to, but you know what, it's going to be okay and look what we learned from this experience. You're a parent and a physician, and not just a physician, but a pediatrician. So how do you, uh, I'm just curious on a personal level, how you your roles sort of fit with one another or don't fit. You're telling parents to do one, you know, one thing. Are you doing the same thing? I think you have two small children. I do. Um, yes. Yeah, I have two boys. Two boys, okay. So how do your boys fit into this whole picture? Or how, how you as a parent, I guess, you know, because it, it, it's got to be challenging for you on both sides, you know, as a pediatrician, but also as a parent. Um, how does that fit sort of into your <laughs> lifestyle? 
Yeah, right. Um, well, you know, I do it perfectly. No, I'm just yes. kidding. You're um, a perfect parent and a perfect I, doctor. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, there is no such thing as perfect. I hate that word. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm like any other parent, right? There's no silver bullet, and I am absolutely making mistakes. Um, and I'm trying to learn from the process. So I've, I've got two small boys, um, and I'm fortunate to have an incredible partner who's, um, who's also a physician here at Mayo Clinic. And, you know, we're just trying to do the best we can. I think, you know, writing this book and being a pediatrician has, you know, pushed me to make sure that I'm, you know, reading research and I'm learning about how um, to encourage positive behaviors in my children and how to foster resiliency. But yeah, I'm, I'm certainly, <laughs> I'm, I'm down in the trenches with other parents and saying, well, didn't get it right that time. All right, let's try it again next time. Um, and hopefully my kids are, um, are going to be okay for that. You know, they're seeing me um, role model that failure is actually, you know, not a bad thing. And then I'm learning from these opportunities. All done in the context of, of love. Um, right. And that's what, yeah, and that's what makes the difference. And I think one of the things I had seen on your, I looked at your, when you were doing a Facebook program is, and I think this is a an important point that that you brought out. I mean, all of this, whether it's sleep training, I think that one of the show is partially about sleep training or feeding or whatever it is. You have to think about it in the context of the families because families can do things very different in very different ways and have a great outcome. I mean, there, you know, you can keep your mm-hmm. kids up to 11 and sleep till 10 if, if you're going to be home or you can put them to bed at six and all of those kinds of things can work and eat you know, they can eat sushi or they can eat beef or, and, and so it has to be how it works for your family. And I think sometimes parents, partners, families lose sight of that. And, and as we've mm-hmm. been talking about, there isn't just one way. Yeah, I know that's such a great, um, great comment to make because that's one thing I, you know, in sleep training, when I'm talking about it with families, is really figuring out what their goals are. What works for my family is not going to work for your family, right? Um, and figuring out really what your goals are, and then we can work together and partner together to figure out how to get you there. And that can be anything from, you know, feeding your child, breastfeeding, sleeping, how you want them to um, to deal with, you know, misbehaviors and consequences. We've got to meet families where they are and when they're, you know, willing and wanting to either make a change or to continue with what they're doing. We need to be supportive of, of all families. Um, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, judgment that goes on sometimes for families, especially, I think, for mothers, um, you know, being in that role. But if we can all, you know, try to be supportive and see that everyone has different life circumstances, they have different factors and struggles that they're trying to deal with as well, everyone's just really trying to do the best job for their, their families. Yeah, and each kid is different. I mean, I know there's this, always this discussion and there's judgment. You know, you're sending your kids to daycare or you're getting a nanny and which is better for the child and and all of those kinds of, of, of decisions that parents have to make. And I guess, because, I mean, and I think those are, that's one of the major, well, it's a big question today. If you're not able or want to or whatever it is, or you're not with your kids 24 hours a day, um, then who's going to take care of them and how and there isn't a answer, I guess there isn't one best answer for that either whether you put your kid in daycare or whether you have a nanny or a babysitter it depends on yeah, your child absolutely. yeah there's a lot of factors you know and, and we we actually dedicated a whole chapter of our book to that um, on trying to figure out what child care is best for you and we're not trying to do it in any type of judgmental judgmental way we offer 
the different advantages to all the different situations. And every family is going to have to figure out what works best for them. Some families don't have any options, but what option they currently are using. And that's fine too. You know, just figuring out what's best for you and your family is really the tone and the message of our book. Yeah, it's. I want to. We only have a couple minutes left. So, if there's anything you want to leave listeners with that we haven't covered, of course, there's so much more in the book to cover. So, I want to obviously mention the book again: the Mayo Clinic Guide to Raising a Healthy Child. And the author is Angela Matkey, M.D., uh, who is at the Mayo Clinic. And so, tell us about just in a couple minutes. Um, hashtag Ask the Mayo Mom. What do we? How do we? How do we do that? Yeah, so this is a Facebook Live show that is on Mayo Clinic's Facebook page. And we started a couple years ago as an interactive way that we can, you know, interact with families and patients and answer their questions in real time that they have about common parenting and childhood um, health topics. We even get into some of the more complex situations, you know, like congenital heart disease and epilepsy and other things, making sure that we're out there putting out accurate and reliable information, but also having dialogue with patients and families. It's something that we do um, twice a month, and you can, you can see um, our shows on the Mayo Clinic Facebook page. We also have a YouTube channel that you can see previous shows on as well. And we can buy your book online, bookstores everywhere, I assume. Yeah, you can also find it in your independent um, local bookstores and also on major online retailers like Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Great. Well, it's great talking to you today. We had lots of good information today. And as I say, there's lots more to talk with you online, real time, as well as buying the book. Thanks for being on the Thanks show today. Thanks so much today. for having me. Great to have oh, you. Oh, sorry. Thanks, Catherine, for having That's me. That's good. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is attorney and author Michael Hackard, Esquire. His new book is Alzheimer's, Widowed Step, 
mothers and estate um, estate crimes cause action and response in cases of fractured inheritance, lost inheritance, and disinheritance. Nearly half a million new cases of Alzheimer's are diagnosed each year in the United States, and nearly six million Americans currently live with the disease. Sadly, anyone with Alzheimer's or dementia is a potential victim of inheritance-related exploitation. Michael Hackard's book is an invaluable guide for the millions of Americans struggling with cognitively impaired family members and inheritance-related conflicts. He's practiced law for over 40 years and has been interviewed regularly by local and national media, including Wall Street Journal, Market Watch, MSN Money, C-SPAN, and many more, and has testified before the House of Representatives. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Michael. It's great to be on. Thank you, Catherine. So, unfortunately, well, we do need your book, fortunately, but unfortunately, I guess this problem of inheritance and disinheritance and uh, all these kinds of ugly things that happen to people who, uh, as they get older and maybe develop dementia or Alzheimer's are really misrepresentative, maybe I guess more, that's kind of like maybe not a strong enough word, by their family members, and it is a real problem, and this is so, hence your book. So what is happening? I mean, is it, this is something that is, is getting worse and worse to people because people live longer and sicker and mentally, you know? I think, um, I think you have yeah. it right. Um, <laughs> people are living longer, so we see uh, a higher, certainly a higher numerical incidents with, you know, as uh, 500,000 new cases per year of Alzheimer's. The, the other problem with it is there, there was a recent study that about 55% of all Alzheimer's patients are not even told of their disease and their family's not told of the disease. So th- that's rather baffling uh, because it creates all kinds of problems. One is uh, it doesn't offer the family uh, enough information to start uh, instituting preventive measures. And even for the victim himself or herself, you know, it's probably baffling as to what's occurring in their own mind. So, um, and Michael, are you saying, I have to stop to, you, I want to stop you, because you're saying yeah. that physicians, let's say, you're, they, you have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, or they know it, and then they don't tell you or your family? They keep it a secret? Yeah. Is that legal? <laughs> There, yeah, there, that's correct. Uh, that they don't always know. It's it's not uh, terribly easy to diagnose. But uh, and and oftentimes the physicians may not be neurologists or psychiatrists that would readily identify it. So they're uh, say family treating physicians, and they we all know about healthcare. People get very little time with their physician. So uh, they they might. Uh, ask some simple t- test like, what is today? Who's the president of the United States? Ask a few things like that and figure people can answer that, that, uh, that they're okay. But So that's part of the problem. There are uh, new laws going into place to treat, uh, or rather to teach, uh, nurses and general physicians as to the signs of dementia and Alzheimer's. All right, given that, let's say we have somebody, then a, a, a parent, I mean a, a relative or whoever it is who's ha, who is, say, the trustee of an estate and has good intentions, that then maybe we can assume there'd be a good outcome. But let's say they don't have good intentions, and you talk about different cases, I think, in your book, and maybe we should go through some of them of what can happen when perhaps a family member who is a trustee um, is not really interested in the best interest 
interests of the patient, but is more interested in their own, how much money they're going to inherit for themselves or their families. Then what happens? Yeah. Um, well, I'll start with the family members. And there are, again, studies about 60% of the primary financial abuse against seniors uh, is uh, started and uh, by family members, Care, caregivers are about another 15%, and then neighbors almost 20%. So what happens is uh, oftentimes the family member uh, is dependent, starts with being dependent on the elder, on the parent, and maybe doesn't have a job, oftentimes alcohol or substance abuse uh, problems. But as time goes on, that parent becomes wholly dependent on that child, to say if that child is living in the home. So it just degenerates into something like, I see it just so many times, degenerates so that uh, the dependent child says, yeah, I'm the one that takes care of you. Everybody else doesn't care about you. Uh, and if you don't give me everything or, or if the trust doesn't give me everything, then I'm going to leave and you're going to end up alone or kicked out of your house or you're going to be completely alone. And of course, going along with this is isolation. Um, I might add too, Catherine, just because of the, uh, I mean, the books, and so I've been at this so many years, I pro- well, we, we count it, but normally we're getting about 30 to 40 new calls or emails per week from uh, people asking about this, oftentimes asking about uh, the legal issues associated with it. So I hear these stories time and time again, and of course we're taking certain cases and uh, going after people that abuse seniors. Can you give us, I mean, obviously without revealing who the clients are, but the the case history, the, you know, the specifics of the case, like if you're getting all those calls, 30 or 40 a week, there have to be a lot of different kinds of scenarios. Let's talk about some of those because that, that was what makes it real and obviously makes it interesting and proves the point. Yeah. Well, there's, there are many, but I'll, I'll just cover a few that instantly come to mind. Uh, so uh, a 90-year-old uh, person uh, whose life plan and estate plan has always been to, uh, been split equally their estate between their uh, two daughters, uh, and one daughter dies, the other daughter uh, lives further, or, you know, hundreds of miles away from uh, the senior. And, but there's a neighbor nearby, and the neighbor basically unduly influences that senior to give her uh, $250,000. Uh, there's also a caregiver who's in on the act to get $250,000. And in that particular one, there's a financial advisor as well who's got uh, his own interest at stake uh, to be appointed uh, as the trustee of the estate. And essentially, the surviving daughter gets cut out for the most part. So that's a a situation I see time and time again. Uh, Other really common situations, we have several of them, now pending, again, it's the caregiver child uh, who has substance abuse, hasn't worked for years, cuts out all the other siblings while the parent is alive and isolates, say, his mother against the other siblings. So other siblings even showing up at the door, they're told you can't see mom, Uh, she's asleep, 
you, you know, you, it's not, you just can't see her, or their telephone calls go unanswered. Uh, mom's phone is gone, uh, so that the only access is the caregiver's phone. And in those cases, you see sometimes uh, transfers prior to death, um, and many other times it's just the trust itself has been changed. Uh, and it's oftentimes the last days of life change to uh, benefit only the uh, caregiver child and cut out everybody else. Uh, that, again, is very common. Uh, we have it, let's take those two scenarios. I want to just, Michael, take those two scenarios, yeah. and then what do you do? Let's say someone's calling you up and saying, this is the problem. You know, I'm the daughter, and I got cut out of, let's say, in the first case, you know, the financial advisor got 250 and the caregiver got 250 Everybody got the, you know, the uh, remainder of the estate except for me. So then what is the lead? What can that person do? Well, and we, we attack it in two different ways. Uh, one is in... Many courts uh, of the of our nation, there are both probate courts or uh, as well as the civil courts. So we in California we attack we attack in the probate court uh, to show that the trust was the result of undue influence. That's one issue. Or we may also show that the decedent didn't have capacity to make the trust. And I'll talk about. Uh, the ways to go about that, that are gathering medical records, testimony of people that knew the decedent, uh, and often, and then we'll have a neurologist or a, a geriatric psychiatrist review those records because they just know a lot more about it. That's one element. Uh, we also attack in the civil courts, and uh, because we have particular statutes allowing for elder financial abuse civil actions that are uh, subject to a jury trial and have a lower standard of proof called the, just the preponderance of evidence. For those that have sat on uh, jury trials, in civil trials, they'll know that. It just means more likely than not. Uh, some of the statutes uh, also allow for attorney's fees assessment in those cases. And that's, that's really a strong hammer uh, against wrongdoers. And it's a hammer we regularly use. In fact, the legislature encourages it. Uh, they, came, they changed some laws to basically encourage families and lawyers to uh, do civil enforcement uh, of these rights. That's for uh, people that have died. That Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, the different. Uh, is it very different in different states? I mean, the statutes are very different? or They're getting closer. Um, to each other. So I, I'm more familiar on um, the states with, say, Florida and California law. Uh, but there, there are efforts to uh, not to make uniform laws with regard to it, but uh, efforts to protect seniors. And so oftentimes these laws will reflect the more uh, or the stronger laws, such as what California has or what Florida has. What's the worst, if, if you can describe the worst case? I mean, you've been practicing for over 40 years, perhaps, uh, that, you, that you've seen. Um, deathbed cases are tough cases. Sometimes where uh, seniors have been ignored uh, and isolated and don't maybe not, don't even know who they are anymore and seeing and I've seen this so many times, but seeing somebody show up at their deathbed 
Uh, it could be a caregiver. It might be a family member freezing others out. Uh, those are probably the most uh, emotionally damaging to uh, family victims. And uh, that you could have a, again, you could have a caregiver in the hospital telling the nurses that they're the daughter and no one else is to see uh, this, you know, the person who's dying. That does happen. Um, they may have set things up beforehand so that they are the person designated on the advanced health care directive to direct the medical care. And I, re- I mean, I've had people coming into my office that they're, uh, one in particular comes to mind. Uh, her father is dying in the local hospital. Uh, it was a stepdaughter had come in and claimed that she was the, I guess she claimed she was the only child so that the daughter herself couldn't get in to see uh, her father. And uh, her father soon died, and we litigated that case and resolved it. But those are sad cases because people just feel cut off from their parent uh, that they've loved and have been, you know, the major part of their life. And then to get cut off, and it could be the last days or even the last years. Those are, those are tough cases. Those are very sad cases. Is there any way, I mean, obviously you're writing this book, so it enlightens people and they have, they realize that this can happen. How could, let's talk about how to, to, to prevent, maybe to prevent some of these scenarios. What can we do? Because maybe, you know, a lot of us are going to live to be 80, 90 years old and you don't necessarily have to have Alzheimer's, even dementia, but sometimes, you know, as people age, they their judgment perhaps isn't as good, and they're much, as you say, they're isolated. They tend to listen to the person who's there who may not be the best person to give the advice or, you know, and so how does that work? How can you sort of maybe mitigate some of this stuff? I think it's mitigated uh, by communication and uh, open communication and particularly, uh, you know, uh, access Maybe not to ch- to withdrawing from financial accounts, but uh, access into seeing what's happening in financial accounts. Uh, the other thing is to, you know, enough visits to a parent uh, to see what's going on in their own house, and are they taking care of themselves? Maybe they're hoarding. Um, are they? Uh, does it look like they're losing uh, properties? That's uh, people that are ta- that are ripping off seniors, start with ripping off personal property. Uh, The other thing is just testing uh, the seniors' uh, psychological health. And this is what often happens is you uh, show up to see your parent or grandparent, whatever that is, and and the person appears to be afraid and the local caregiver or the caregiver sits in the room or just outside the room to listen to everything that's going on. And, and oftentimes, if they're in the room, will answer on behalf of the senior. That's tough because usually what's going on in the senior's mind is they're afraid that if they say anything wrong, they're going to be in trouble with their caregiver and they're going to get punished. That's, again, a very common scenario. Well, you've seen it. I mean, as I'm listening to you, I mean, it seems to me you've seen every combination, every permutation, uh, every situation, I guess, that kind of, I mean, in, in your experience over the years, um, which, 
uh, it's sort of difficult, I guess. To, I mean, that, that, so in other words, try not to have the person be isolated. Seniors, I mean, that isolating them, that is, that's a very effective way of manipulating people. Um, and, you know, whether it's a caregiver or a stepdaughter or whoever it is. So other family members, number one, should be aware of that and make sure that that doesn't happen and have a connection, even if they live far away. Exactly. And maybe the connection is a trusted neighbor. Uh, obviously, not all people do bad things. There are a lot of people uh, in, that reach out to others and help others and uh, aren't, don't necessarily have their own interest at stake, but rather the senior's interest at stake. The other thing, too, the uh, siblings should try to communicate with each other as to what's going on with the parent. Because if it's a sibling abuse, you'll, that, the abuser will not want to be communicating with the other siblings as to what's occurring. Um, what do you do in the case if you have a lot of, if you have, um, uh, say, several si siblings? And I've seen this uh, over the years where you'll have maybe two or three siblings against one sibling. And so, uh, you know, if, say if there are four siblings, uh, it'll be two and two. And so you have the siblings battling with one another. How does that fit into this? Um, it fits into it. <laughs> Uh, and it's not all always easily resolved. Uh, one thing that I suggest to people uh, is that let's say that a parent does in fact want to favor one sibling over another for whatever reason, um, and, and let's assume for a good reason. So some lawyers in the country will suggest that that senior actually get interviewed by a neurologist or in my you, a geriatric psychiatrist is a better choice, um, to, to test whether that person has capacity and whether the, their decision to change their estate plan was the result of undue influence or rather was of their own free mind and will. That's a good thing so that if you've got some sibling differences uh, and you want to preserve that estate plan, uh, that's a very good thing to do. And, and we do send people out to uh, psychiatrist for a review, and we're not sitting in on it. It's an unfettered review. Um, and we've actually had it come back before, well, this person really doesn't have capacity or, uh, or uh, you know, he or she's been unduly influenced. And that, that helps us, too. What about because people? Because that I mean, trust is not going to hold up if, that was, if it was a result of undue influence. Sometimes it's difficult for people, not just financially, but just in terms of their own motivation, to get to an attorney, to get to an attorney like yourself, uh, and, and they don't do it. I mean, they just, and even if they know something is going on, they, they, for whatever reasons, they don't seem to handle it. But can the whole process be made simple, I guess, or simpler than it is, you know? I've seen families where, well, I, they know this is happening, and well, but they you know, they just don't want to deal with it. Um, of course, until the very end, and then it gets a lot. The situation or the problem gets a lot more complicated. Yeah, it is difficult. And what we do, and we get overwhelmed at times, and that part's tough. So as I say, that many calls, but we have a, a intake one particular intake specialist that I then back up. And sometimes we'll have two intake people, and we we might we probably only take about 
3%, 5% of the cases that are presented to us. So I, at times when I speak to lawyers, I, I really encourage them to get smart uh, in this area and to be responsive to their communities, uh, to help teach people about uh, elder financial abuse and how to protect the elders. Um, and we don't charge when we're, when we're talking to people. Sometimes people will call me and say, well, a local, they've been to a local attorney who wants $300 or $500 uh, to talk to them. I, people have to make a living, but the other side of it is, I think, start with giving out free information that's helpful to people, and then if it gets down to the specifics of a case, well, then engage that person as a client. But I, I think people need to, lawyers need to be more responsive, helping seniors out, because we have, you know, I'm a senior. Uh, we have some 65 million baby boomers, 10,000 of us turn 65 every day in this country. This, this is a group of people that needs to be helped and needs to be served. Well, I hope you're one of those people, I, I'm assuming you are, one of those who helps, you know, the, what, you know the, the shoemaker who doesn't have a good pair of shoes, that you're not one of those lawyers who helps everybody else but haven't helped themselves. Um, well, <laughs> that's funny, <laughs> because actually we had gone like 20 years without changing our trust. It was well, a you valid go. trust, and it worked, <laughs> but, by, you know, then we have grandchildren and things happen, and uh, so I have done uh, more work recently to keep up to date in my own life. Well, that's a good thing. Um, how do you, this is sort of the personal side of it, I guess, you know, you, you, you practice for all these years, you see all the, I guess, the, the, the bad things that people can do to one another. Uh, how do you keep up your own I guess, sort of uh, good feelings and, and, and not get overwhelmed by some of this, this behavior, which is very sad? I mean, families who are together for many years and then all of a sudden at the end, you know, everything falls apart. I mean, that has to have some kind of an impact on you. It has uh, impact, impacts at times, uh, it does. But for every day that I have, it's, uh, well, there was, there was this song uh, by Don Williams, it's a country song, but it, the song is, Lord, I hope this day is good. <laughs> and I think of that, that song at times. And so during my day, I, I do try to think, uh, I am here to help people. It is overwhelming at times. And I think that lawyers that uh, are on the other side of, uh, of us at times, maybe I take it out on them a little bit, because if I think that uh, if I've had one of those days where I'm irritated over what's happening to people, I, uh, I think I can be tough on those lawyers. Uh, I, although it's not so tough that we can't resolve it, nor do I try to be rude. We try to have collegiality, but maybe I take it out a little bit on the other lawyers. All right, well, I guess we can forgive you for that. Um, this is kind of another uh, social media. We don't, we don't have that much time left, actually. We have four minutes left. Like, how can can that help? I mean, you talk about information, and lawyers now uh, are more active maybe in communities and lecturing and informing people because how many baby boomers did you say? We have 65 million baby boomers. 65 million, yeah. Yeah, so that's a lot of people. Um, online, are there, there are there reputable, like, online information 
things, th- stuff that we can get that give us sound, at least general legal advice is related to this topic? Yeah, there, there are online resources. Uh, oftentimes states will, if you look under financial elder abuse, uh, states themselves will have summaries of law and maybe uh, advice as to how to prevent elder abuse. Um, there, what we put out on social media, we're, we, well, I'm actually speaking today from our own studio, but we do, uh, we put up YouTube videos. They're normally two to three minutes each. Um, and we have over 50, 450 of them up. We do about two to three per week. And for the most part, I'm just trying to share information that, you know, that I know and that's uh, a little bit generic but that can help people. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that we get so many calls. We oftentimes post, uh, you know, also on things like Facebook. It, it doesn't have the reach of YouTube. But um, we're responsive in that way. And I've encouraged other lawyers to do it. Just talk about Maybe you just talk about what are people calling you about. Don't share, uh, con- you know, confidential information. But that's a very good test as to uh, what's going on in the country, what's going on in your local uh, community, because if people are calling you about it. It's a problem. Well, uh, that's a great idea. And uh, actually, I'm going to look at you said 400 you're on YouTube. That's what two or three minutes under Hackard Law. Yeah, under Hackard it's quite law. a view. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, hacker law. Okay, that's easy. So, uh, well, uh, it's been great talking to you. We've got a lot of good information today. I think this is going to kind of propel people to go on YouTube and look at your YouTube um, information, hacker law. Uh, but the title of the book is Alzheimer's, Widowed Stepmothers, and Estate Crimes, Cause, Action, and response in cases of fractured inheritance, lost inheritance, and disinheritance. And we've been talking to Michael Hackard today, Esquire. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 